we mean these words. We're gathered like this together with our church and uh, our heart desire, Lord, is to love you more. Would you please help us with that? The world presses in upon us. We're easily distracted. We do desire, as we've just sung, to want Jesus more than any of the riches this world can afford. Father, would you take your word and use it and cut deep, challenge us, convict us, encourage us, build us up, build your church and grow your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have to tell you that I don't know exactly how old I was at the time, maybe 10, maybe 11 years old, and... I walked into the front door of our home and I knew immediately that something was really wrong. I didn't know what was wrong, but as I walked through the kitchen and looked up the short steps up into our upper bedroom area, I could hear my sister in her bedroom wailing in distress and in grief. Well, I decided I wasn't going to hang around there very long, but I needed to know what was going on, and I was told she broke up with Joe. She wailed. She cried so deeply and so hard that the blood vessels in her face broke. You see, you have to understand that Joe wasn't just her boyfriend. Joe was her fiancé. She had his diamond on her hand. And then she found out that he had gone out with another girl. He had betrayed her. There's something about betrayal that cuts so deeply, isn't it? Isn't there? I mean, there are many great stories of betrayal. If you Google that simple line, great stories of betrayal or stories of betrayal, Almost immediately at the top of the list, you'll be reminded of something you learned in history class way back in high school. It happened on March 15th, 44 BC, about 70 years before uh, the account of our Lord in Matthew 26, where we are today. And I even invite you to turn there if you haven't already in Matthew 26 and get your notes and your pen ready. It'll be helpful to you, I think, this morning. There is a A great story of deep betrayal. It was Julius Caesar who knew such treachery and betrayal. I don't know if you remember how it went. Among the conspirators and the assassins was a young man whose name um, was Marcus Junius Brutus. Brutus was esteemed by Julius Caesar Above all others, he was as though he were a son to Caesar. And he loved him and esteemed him so highly. Historians tell us that when these assassins came in the room and approached Caesar and he understood what was happening, that he first resisted the onslaught, but then he saw that Brutus was among them with his dagger drawn The Roman historians say that Caesar at at that point ceased struggling, took his robe and put it up over his head and sitting still asked that most famous question, you too, Brutus? 
betrayal. It's a horrible thing. And in Matthew 26, we are now just really hours away from that time when our Lord will be praying in the garden to conclusion of His earthly ministry. It felt good to me to turn back to Matthew, I have to tell you, this week in my study. Uh, for those of you that are new, we've been here for like a million years, four and a half years, something like that. Lord willing, I have a schedule to conclude our Matthew series on Easter Sunday. We're going to take chapter 28 in the Great Commission passage. We're going to bump it forward going right into our missions conference weekend with Paul Sager. The week before that, we're going to deal with the Great Commission and our Lord's great last command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That'll set us up to have Matthew's resurrection account on Easter Sunday and Lord willing, we'll be done. I want to tell you that these chapters are really long, 26, 27, and they are packed with incredible accounts. There are some powerful passages that we need to deal with as much as possible. Be faithful, be a part. If you miss, you can click on the website and listen. I want us to read our text this morning. We begin with the betrayal of Judas, and we end with the institution of the Lord's Supper as he establishes this new covenant in his blood. And he's, he brings a conclusion to the Passover dinner. And he changes it for his followers. I want you to follow closely in your copy of God's Word as I read. And, and then we'll use some key words as we draw truths from these passages. We begin as our text this morning in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 14. And then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And I can't help but stop again and say, you dirty dog. You dirty dog. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Asking the Lord that question. Verse 18, he said, go into the city to a certain man. The man is unnamed and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him. Jesus says, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after, he, after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave it to the disciples, and He said, Take, eat. This is My body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're looking forward to His millennial kingdom and then the eternal state. Let's stop right there for this morning and 
I've selected a few key words to kind of hang our thoughts on this morning as we work our way through the outline. And if you have your notes handy and you want to fill in the blanks, it'll be helpful to you. The first one, though, is, is contrast. I want you to see that as we open this text and we look in and we begin with this story of the account of Judas setting up the betrayal of our Lord, we cannot help but think for a minute what we just read right before that. And it was the account of this precious woman. We know from John's gospel that it was Mary in Bethany, verses 6 through 13. One of our last message, the first of our Christmas series on worship was the cost of worship. And we used Mary as our model. Remember, she had that alabaster box and she had that pure nard and she broke it on our Lord. It was worth one year's wages. No doubt it was part of her investment portfolio. It was part of her securities. And she took that bottle of perfume worth an entire year's worth of wages and she broke it on our Lord Jesus. And she wept. And she pulled the pin out of her hair and she let her long hair drop. And she got on her hands and knees and she let her tears wet the feet of our Lord Jesus. And she took her hair and she wiped off his feet. And she was a precious, most precious picture of worship, wasn't she? And then it says, then, verse 14, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas. Well, you know, we don't know if Judas, if that was the trip. You know, maybe that was the tripping point. That was the trigger. He's standing there watching Mary take one year's wages and dump it out on our Lord Jesus in worship and he can't stand it. He even says so. Remember, he criticizes her and he says, shouldn't we have sold this money, sold this perfume, taken the money, given it to the poor? Of course, our Lord had just been talking to them about taking care of the poor. But we're also told in parallel accounts that because he was the treasurer, he had been stealing from the money bag and so he just wanted more money. He was an embezzler. Let, let's just, let me say it again and make me feel better. The dirty dog. <laughs> and there she is, precious Mary. Our Lord stops and remember, and, and he, he says that really incredible phrase, line, where he says, listen, leave her alone. She's preparing me for my death, for one thing. And she says, from now on, Jesus said, from now on, wherever the gospel is preached, they'll talk about this lady. And so we can't help but have that in our minds as we read about the betrayal of Judas. And so it sets up for a contrast. Let's quickly click off some words here. As we think about Mary, she's definitely a picture of loyalty, isn't she? Number one, she's a picture of loyalty. I mean, she is so committed to her Lord Jesus. She would not think of betraying him. Secondly, it is a heart of sincerity, isn't it? She, she is a picture of sincerity. Tears rolling down her cheeks, pulling her hairpin, wiping his feet with her hair which is also number three, a picture of her humility. Her humility. She is truly a humble person as she worships our Lord. And she has to be in the category of generous. She makes her generosity known, number four, her generosity as she breaks open that perfume and pours it out and spills it on him. Gone forever, only for the moment of worship. Mary is a picture of loyalty, sincerity, humility, generosity. And then, and then, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, he meets with the chief priests. What will you give me if I get him to you? Thirty pieces of silver. That'll do it. 
a picture number one of disloyalty, isn't it? Absolutely the opposite of Mary. Where she is a picture of loyalty, he's a picture of disloyalty. And, and he's a picture of duplicity and hypocrisy. Number two, duplicity. What a hypocrite. To follow our Lord, to participate in his ministry, probably to have even have acted out on his own through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, doing miracles himself, Judas did. Stealing from the money bag, waiting for an opportunity to make even some more money and put this guy to the knife. Nothing but self-centeredness. Number three, he's a picture of self-centeredness. All Judas cared about was himself, where Mary cared nothing for herself. Judas cares about himself because he was driven by number four, greed, by greed. In fact, I thought it would be a good idea for us to, to turn over to Paul's exhortation in 1 Timothy right now. And as before we move on, let's just get a little sermon within the sermon. Can we do that? Um, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, turn to the right towards the back of your Bibles to first Timothy chapter six. And let's pick it up actually at verse eight. And man, this is just powerful stuff right here. Listen to this verse, these verses. First Timothy six, beginning with verse eight, the apostle Paul writing to young pastor Timothy exhorts him and he says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Uh, back in Matthew 26, wouldn't you say that Judas is the personification of that person who loves money, who craves and ultimately runs themselves through with many pangs. Well, I just couldn't move through there without noting the contrast between Mary, her loyalty, sincerity, humility, generosity, Judas, a picture of disloyalty, duplicity, self-centeredness, and greed. That leads us to the next, uh, to looking a little bit closer at Judas's part there in 14 through 16, which we've already read. And the key word here is collusion. Collusion. Now there's a word we wouldn't have used just a few months ago. I never used that word before, and I thought to myself, this is collusion going on here. And I looked it up in the dictionary. By definition, here's what collusion means. It means secret, secret or illegal cooperation, especially in order to deceive. Now, what we hear in the news every day about the Russians and President Trump and the Democrats and the FBI and the Clinton camp and the Clinton campaign and is collusion. They're trying to find illegal secret meetings that they can prosecute. In this situation, I, you could construe that it was illegal, but the word secret there is the key. It was a secret cooperative meeting that Judas holds, especially in order to deceive. I thought it would be good for us to note this concept in Mark's account, in the parallel account in Mark. And so flip in your Bible again with me to Mark 14. Uh, in Mark 14, 11 is where we find this verse. Notice what it says here. It says, and when they heard it, verse of 11 of Mark 14. And when they heard it, they were glad. The, the high priests were. They were glad that they heard the offer and they promised to give him money. They promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray them. 
And so then we also have this idea of Mark 11, 14, 11. They promised to give him money. Luke 22, 5. Take a look there. Luke 22, 5. Take a look there. Luke's account, and by the way, you can mark this with a pen or a, or a bulletin because I'd like to come back to this passage. Now, I've said that in all three services so far. We haven't done it yet. We'll see if we can do it with you. Um, Luke 22, I want to come back to this account, so mark it with, with your bulletin or something. Notice verse 3, very interesting. Look what it says. Then Satan entered into Judas. Wow called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred, he colluded, there it is. He conferred a secret meeting for deception with the chief priests and officers, how he might betray him, Jesus, and get him to them. And they were glad. They were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him. The dirty dog. So we have this secret meeting. It's interesting that Judas exposes his heart here. We know that he's a thief. We know that he's an embezzler. It is shocking to us to recognize that, that he would turn coat on our Lord, his master, that he has publicly been identified with for three years, and he will do it for 30 pieces of silver. By the way, some people are critical of the fact that Mark 14, Luke 22 say that he agreed to take money and that Matthew in Matthew 26 account, he says that they paid him 30 pieces of silver and they say, see, na 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 the Bible contradicts itself. That's utter nonsense. It's a different account given from a different perspective. He met with them, they made an agreement, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. I don't know what order it happened in. Obviously, they talked about it, came to conclusions in their collusion, and they paid him. Did they pay him before he left that day, or did they pay him the next day or the next day? I don't know when they paid him, but they paid him. And Matthew is pointing out that they paid him 30 pieces of silver because in chapter 27, Matthew is going to make note of the fact that that is a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. I wrote one of those verses down for you. It's Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. And you don't need to turn there. But what it says there is that he will be sold for 30 pieces of money, 30 silver shekels. And that he would throw them down in the potter's house, it says in Zechariah. You remember what Judas did in his angst and in his, his overwhelming, the overwhelming reality that what he had done was so wrong when he came to his senses for a few moments. He takes the money and he throws it in the potter's house and he goes out and hangs himself. The rope breaks, he falls down the cliff and dashes himself open. Right there in Scripture. For 30 pieces of silver. And then I was thinking about that and I was reading a little bit and it, it struck me that Exodus 21:32 would have been known by all of the high priests. All of them would have known this verse. They would have known the law of Moses. Essentially, they could have quoted it all. They would have known the prophecy about Zechariah and not even realized that they were part of the fulfillment of that. But they would have known the writings of Moses and the law of Moses and the Pentateuch inside and out. And in that Passage Exodus 21 is giving guidelines for when neighbors wrong one another. And in this agriculturally driven culture and society, the, he was pointing out that if you have a servant or a slave and your neighbor's bull gores your slave, you got, the guy who owns the bull has to pay the guy who owns the slave 
30 pieces of silver. It's right there, Exodus 21, 32. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. What a picture. Who is the, who is the ultimate slave and servant, the doulos, our Lord Jesus? And he's about to be gored by a bull. And they're paying 30 pieces of silver for him. You talk about identifying with the least of these. Our Lord Jesus did that, didn't he? There he is at slave status, getting compensated 30 pieces of silver for the goring of a bull. I just thought that was a remarkable picture worth pointing out. So there's the collusion 14 through 16. That begins then, the preparation for the Passover, and they end up at dinner that night. Verses 17 through 19 are the preparations for Passover. And if you've ever been, for example, part of our Seder suppers, you know that there's symbolic items uh, on your plate. There's certain kinds of spices. There's certain kinds of things. For example, uh, they use bitter herbs there in the Passover meal, bitter herbs. We use horseradish. Because when we eat it on our cracker of unleavened bread, we want tears to come to our eyes. Because why? Because every part of the Passover dinner or the Seder supper is symbolic. And they were preparing for the Passover. Now you need to understand, look what it says in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is very important. That they have a place to eat the Passover. They had no idea that this would be their last supper together. They had no idea that a world famous painting would spring from this moment. They had no idea. We had no idea that actually the Passover itself would be brought to a conclusion in just a few minutes at that supper. And an entirely new covenant would be made with God and his people through Christ. And there would no longer be the celebration of the Passover. But there would be the celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ and his body and his blood. So here's what's happening. This is an eight-day festival. It is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's unleavened because it doesn't have yeast in it because yeast in the Bible is a sign of sin. This is all a picture that goes way back in the history of Israel to Egypt and all of old. You remember when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. And, and so God sent the ten plagues. Remember what I'm talking about. Remember the flies and, and maggots and water turning to blood and hailstones. But Pharaoh still refused to let God's people go. And Moses was calling them out. And, and then God did something that was profoundly powerful. He told Moses, tell your people, kill the lamb, sprinkle the blood on their doorposts. Because at midnight tonight, what's going to happen? the death angel is going to go through the camp. And the death angel had the power to strike dead and stop the heart and stop the brain waves of the firstborn of every living creature. The first pup born in the litter. The first bull calf born from that heifer cow. The first of your laying hens. Whatever one hatched first, whatever was oldest, whatever living creature. My daddy was the first of his siblings And he's in bed dead now in the middle of the night. And and my grandma who lives in the apartment next to us, she's dead because she was the firstborn. And in Egypt, the wailing begins, right? Because they didn't put the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. 
And that night, Pharaoh said, you get your people and you get out of here. We don't want to see you again. In fact, they start emptying their pockets and their jewelry boxes. And they said, we'll give you whatever we need. They take their jewelry off. In the middle of the night, Egypt is filled with wailing as people realize that the death angel had come. And the firstborn living creature in every household was dead. Dead. And, and Israel leaves. Now think about your history. Think about what it means to us to celebrate a patriotic holiday. Sometimes can even get goosebumps when the band plays a certain song and the fireworks pop a certain way. We're so proud of those who have gone before us. Think about if the survival of your nation had everything to do with the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And that night, God started a whole new work and He left, He let you free from bondage. And you went to the promised land. And you're going to become now the greatest nation. More in number than the stars of the sky. More in number than the sand at the seashore. He promised Abraham in his covenant with him. And so from then on, generation after generation after generation, always look forward to these eight-day feasts of the unleavened bread coming out of Egypt, away from bondage. Unleavened bread, speaking of a purity and a freedom from sin and a freedom from the bondage of Egypt, which is a picture of being bound in sin and out of the will of God. Now we're in the will of God. And every generation was taught. And it began, technically speaking, the Passover was just the dinner that began the first of the eight days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was so important, and you always acknowledge it, and you acknowledge the fact that this was the time when the lamb, the lamb's blood was spilt, put on the doorpost, and the death angel passed over, hence the name Passover meal. And so they prepared, and then a funny thing happens at the table. Not funny, ha-ha, but like, whoa, funny, like, whoa. Verse 20. So they prepared... And when it was evening, he reclined at the table. Okay, so there's stages to the Passover meal. We don't know where during the dinner that this happened. The first part of it is symbolic. Remember, if you've been part of the Seder Supper. And then at the end, you kind of get to the meat and potatoes and you can kind of just eat your fill. It's likely about that time and they're laid back and they're eating. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? In the Greek, that's in the negative. It's not I, Lord. Not I. He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. It's going to happen to the Son of Man just the way the Scriptures say. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said it is so. Notice what's happening. It's a moment of conviction. Roman number three in your notes. The first thing we have in verse 21 is a startling revelation, don't we? Jesus is sitting there. They're doing the Passover. They have no idea that they're within hours of losing their Lord for good. That he's going to go to the cross. And he's been telling them they just don't get it. And then he says, you know, somebody here is going to betray me. Wow. Somebody here is going to betray me. In fact, this is a good time to turn in our Bibles to John 13. I want to read John's account together with you because it is powerful. It adds more, more color commentary on this. John chapter 13 is the parallel account. <coughs> Excuse me, in John's Gospel, beginning with verse 21. 
And I want you to read this and listen to this. John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, who is writing this, talking about himself in the second person. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter, he would be the old, crusty, senior-level guy of the disciples. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. See, there's going to be eight more days. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. It's quite a picture, isn't it? These guys gathered around the table as is the culture of their day, uh, kind of in a lounge mode. Um, not... Uh, uncomfortable at all in this culture for men to touch one another like our own culture. And so John is actually leaned up against the Lord. He loves to be with Jesus. He's a young man. He wanted to be close to his master. Peter signals across the table when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, they're all shocked. They're in disbelief. Are you kidding me? Peter's wheels begin to turn. He signals either with his mouth or his hands or his eyes. He indicates to John, find out who this is. I guess Peter is going to whoop up on him. So Jesus, John whispers to Jesus, Lord, who, who is it exactly? And Jesus says, whoever I dip this bread in and hand it to, that's who it's going to be. And he hands it to Judas. Back to Matthew 26 and back to our list under conviction. Letter A, a startling revelation turns into immediate self-examination. Self-examination, verse 22, where it says each one of them begin to say, Is it I? Is it I? Not I, Lord. Who is it? Peter says to John, find out who it is right now. Reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. Where Paul, in teaching on the Lord's table, says, before you partake of the cup and the bread, make sure you do what? You examine yourself. Interesting that there was a time of examination right before the first ever communion. Then there's a word of condemnation. A word of condemnation, verse 24. It would have been better for the guy who's going to do this to never have been born than to do this. We also know that he was driven by Satan himself. And then Jesus gives at least indirect identification, indirect identification as he points out who is this person. I've already eaten with this person. You need to understand the betrayal here is even deeper. And the shock of the disciples is such because in this Eastern culture, if you were at the table in someone's home and they were eating with you and they dip their bread in and they hand it to you, it is a peace treaty. It was part of a fellowship meal. 
You would never then betray you. Even if it was your worst enemy that was there, if they were there and you dipped the bread and you gave it to them, you would then fight for that guy. You would protect that guy. He was in your home. It was a demand of the hospitality rules of the day. And so it was shocking. I whistled that one. It was shocking for them to realize that someone would do this and then betray. You don't do that. And there in that context of betrayal, of dirty dog betrayal, our Lord stands up as they were eating and He says, this bread, He takes the bread, verse 26, and after blessing it, He broke it and He gave it to the disciples and He said, take, eat, this is My body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. Notice that a priest didn't give it to them. They all drank their own. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice also for future reference that Jesus calls it the fruit of the vine, not his blood in the cup. It's a weird little thing. I mean, they're having their Passover supper at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They've done this all of their lives. And they had no idea the ramifications of what was happening right in front of them. That our Lord was once and for all stopping the Passover feast. And he was instituting a brand new covenant right in front of them. A covenant, you know, is an agreement. It's an agreement, number four, between God and people. If you were to look up Genesis 8 and Genesis 15, that's two examples. Genesis 8 is the Noahic covenant. God made a covenant with Noah. Genesis 15 is the Abrahamic covenant. God made an agreement with Noah, a covenant with Noah. You will notice that in every time God makes a binding covenant with people and with a man or with a person, they shed blood to ratify it. Blood is always shed to ratify a covenant. Exodus 24 and Leviticus 17, you don't have to turn there, but it will reference specifically the blood of the covenant. What's it talking about? It's talking about the blood that is shed that seals this agreement. All right? Now, I don't think our disciples here at the table really got the ramifications of what was happening. And I'm not sure we understand in the church today the power of that moment. So why do we do what we do? Why do we take a cup? And why do we take some bread? And about every... Eight weeks or so is what we do here. Every other month about. The Bible gives no prescribed timeline. It just says, Paul said, as often as you do this. We are to regularly do what our Lord said here. And he holds up the bread and he says, this is my body. He holds up the cup. This is my blood. Ephesians 1.7 is written in your notes and it says, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Blood was shed to establish this covenant with Christ and His people from now on. He holds up the cup. He holds up the bread. They don't know that He's going right to the cross. They don't know that they're going to watch his blood flow from the whippings and from the thorns and from the spear, from the nails. But that blood would shed for the sins of the world. All of the people who had ever lived before that looked forward to that date. The blood of Christ 
took care of all of their sin, and all of us looked backward to that point. And what was it? That's, that's Passover blood, people. When Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, when he holds up the bread as his broken body, when he holds up the cup as a representation of his blood, he's telling us, look, you've been celebrating the Passover lamb and the blood sprayed out on the doorposts of your homes all of these generations. And I'm telling you from now on, there is a new deal in town. There is a new covenant and the covenant is in my body and the covenant is in my blood ratified and sealed through my death, the shedding of my blood, apart from which there is no forgiveness of sin. And today, we stand free from our sin. We go to the foot of the cross. We're, we're forgiven where we repent of our sin. We receive the free gift of God's salvation in Christ. And the death angel passes over our house because the blood of Christ is sprinkled on our doorpost. Praise God. Now, there's controversy here. Admittedly, there's controversy. And the controversy has everything to do with this phrase, this is my body and this is my blood. So what does that mean? All right, if, if you're, if you're in a, from a Roman Catholic tradition, out of this passage, combined with the teaching of John in John chapter 6, where Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to be part of me, they've come up with a deal where when they do their mass that has communion, and they always do communion at the mass, the priest blesses it and then puts it on their mouth or they partake of the wine cup, they teach that it is transformed into the very body and blood of Christ. He said, wait a minute, how does that happen? Well, they would say, look, Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. So it must be his body and blood. There's some real problems with this view. It's called transubstantiation. You can see it on your chart there. They believe the bread and wine literally changed to the body and blood of Christ. So like they'll say, okay, if I can do like this surgical procedure and put this super duper microscope in the side of your neck, and then when you're swallowing it, by the time it goes down your throat, it's going to actually be the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. Oh, no, it'll look like bread and wine. It doesn't change its look. So you say, so you don't mean literally. No, 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 literally. It literally is the body and blood. Of some, and ultimately, the answer that you come to is that a miracle takes place. It's a miracle. You could actually write that down in the second box there next to transubstantiation. It's a miracle. It doesn't change its look if you were to examine it or cut somebody's stomach open. And find, right here is the DNA of Jesus. We could clone it. No, you can't. It's still wine and bread, but it's, they really believe it is literally. Because why? Because they literally believe that Jesus is being re-crucified and his blood is being shed every time they do communion. But I ask you a question. In our New Testament, how many times did Jesus die for our sin? Once and for all. He doesn't keep re-dying. That's why if you go into a Catholic church... And up in Harper's Ferry is an example of one of the most dramatic I've ever seen. There are crosses and our Lord Jesus' body is where? It's on the cross and blood is flowing. This is not a once and for all deal. And that's called transubstantiation because they really believe that it becomes the body and blood of our Lord. This is my body. This is my blood. Consubstantiation is kind of similar, only different. Um, bread and wine contain, hence the con, they contain the body and blood of Christ, but do not literally change. 
Christ is actually present in, with, and under the elements. That's the consubstantiation. I, I kind of don't get it. I read their stuff and I'm like, I, I don't get that. And I really don't get John Calvin on his reform view. John Calvin taught something that I just don't understand. I, I cannot understand what he says. I literally read the paragraphs and it's like, it makes no sense to me. So if you know it, come and tell me and explain it to me in simpler terms. But it's something about... Christ is not literally here, but he's here at communion in a special way that he's not here otherwise when his body is gathered. And there is a special grace that recipients get. It's not a saving grace, but there's a special grace. There's essentially zero biblical foundation for this, but somehow he construed it in his mind. And I don't mean to make light of it or make fun of it. John Calvin was a much smarter guy than I am, but that's the reform view and I'm not good at explaining it. Uh, there is a presence of Christ in the in the assembly of believers here somehow, but I believe that we are the body of Christ. He's always with us. I don't know. A guy named Zwingli used to meet with Calvin and they had debates. Calvin would not shake Zwingli's hand. He refused to fellowship with him over this point. They divided over communion because Zwingli said, look, it's not the real body and blood of our Lord as the church has been teaching. And it's not this odd presence here at the, in the room. It is a memorial view and that's what we hold to and in Luke 22, and we'll not turn there, we're out of time, but Luke 22 says, repeatedly in Luke's account, he says, when our Lord took the cup and he took the bread, he said, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we chisel that in on our communion table. In remembrance of me. Paul reiterated that in 1 Corinthians 11 on his teaching on communion. Do this in remembrance of me until he returns. A couple of thoughts on this, just to wrap up, is arguing that it's not the literal body and blood of our Lord. Letter A might not make sense to me. Let me comment on it. Christ's body and bread in the, pre in the presence of his disciples were clearly distinct. In other words, when he holds up the bread and he says to his disciples, this is my body. The disciples had no problem understanding that he had a piece of unleavened bread in his hand and that this was his body. You follow me? And one didn't become the other. It was a picture. Secondly, our Lord always and often, not always, but often taught in symbolic terms. So what are you going to do in, in John uh, chapter 6 when he says, I am the bread of life and I've come from heaven like manna. Is he literally manna? No, he's spiritual manna. To say that our Lord Jesus is manna is not a bad statement. To say that he's a spiritual manna who came from heaven, that's not a bad statement. But he's not really manna. He's not really bread with doughy bread that gets baked in the oven. It's a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. Same thing with, I am the vine, Jesus said. What is he, a vine? No, he's not a vine. He's the vine. What do you mean? That's confusing. It's a figure of speech. They're always confusing. Got to make the point. That's all he's doing. This is my body, which is broken for you. Breaks the bread. You have to eat this bread. I have to be in you. This is my blood, which was shed for you in this cup. No, it's not. It's wine. It's juice. No, no. You have to drink my blood. That's bizarre language. When we come to Christ, you have to recognize that He was putting an end to the Passover 
celebration once and for all. When we do the Seder Supper, we don't do it to celebrate the Passover. We do it to just act out a memory. It's just something that they used to do, and we kind of do it just to kind of think it's cool. It's like reenacting a battle at Harper's Ferry or something. Not really fighting. We're just acting out something that happened. It's meaningful. It's history. Now he says, this is my body and this is my blood. It's broken for you. It's shed for you. And you do this now in remembrance of me because you're busy people and you're everywhere and you're watching TV and you're listening to your phones and watching your Facebook too much and you need to sit still every once in a while and you need to remember, you need to remember that, that the death angel was on his way to your house and you were lost in your trespasses and sin and the death angel is going to take you and he's going to take everybody in your home and one day... The precious Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrificial Lamb came, the ultimate Passover Lamb came and spilt His blood on the doorpost of your heart and now the death angel passes over you. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. What a powerful picture, right? What a powerful reality. And our disciples didn't get it, I don't think. Do you get it? Do you get it? I hope so. Let's stand and pray. Be dismissed. Well, Father, thank You for this important text. And Father, would You challenge our own hearts that we would be like the disciples and ask ourselves, is it I? Lord, are we capable of betraying You? Are we capable of being a dirty dog betrayer like Judas? Father, forgive us for the ways that we sometimes are embarrassed of our Lord Jesus. We sometimes are afraid to identify with Him. Father, would the profound picture of the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost stick with us? The reality that we have newness of life in Christ and that by faith in Christ, by Your grace and Your goodness, You've provided salvation here once and for all. Open our eyes to these truths. Encourage us, strengthen us, even continue to teach us through these words, through your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.